Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Faith Christian Podcast. At Faith Christian, our purpose is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information about Faith Christian, check out our website, fccnp.org, or stop by on a Sunday morning. We'd love to meet you. Now we hope you enjoy this recent teaching from Faith Christian Church. Again, let me thank you for being here. Glad we get to spend this time together. Uh, we do exist here at Faith Christian for one reason, and that is to help people find and follow Jesus. So if there's some way we can help you take your next step as a follower of Jesus, we would love to make that journey, help you along that journey, and be with you along the way. Uh, I want to mention to you just real quick, especially if you're a parent of an uh, elementary age kid, uh, Kara has a parent meeting planned this morning after second service. If you're here first service and you've got a kid that age, she would still love to talk to you between services. It'll let you know kind of what's going on in our faith kids ministry for the next uh, few weeks and months. Uh, she would love just a couple of seconds of your time if you could see her after the service would appreciate that. Well, we're wrapping up this morning, this sermon series we've been in, we've called Questioning Jesus. And what we've been doing since the first of the years, we've been journeying through the first part of the book of Mark. We're, like I said, we're wrapping this up today, but we're looking at these moments in the life of Jesus where people had questions for Jesus. They, they questioned him because when we're honest, we, we all do. And the question isn't so much, and we've kind of identified this, the question isn't necessarily, do I think Jesus is real? The question is, do I think Jesus was right? And so we've looked at all these moments in the life of Jesus where he's been questioned, and the questioning Jesus moment that we're going to read about today in Mark chapter 8, I think, I think might be the biggest of all these questions. So let's just dig right in, can we? This is Mark 8, beginning of verse 27. It'll be on the screen. You've got a Bible with you. You can open up and follow along as I read it out loud. Jesus and his disciples left Galilee and went up to the villages near Caesarea Philippi. As they were walking along, he asked them, Who do people say I am? Well, they replied, Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say you are one of the prophets. Then he asked them, But who do you say I am? It's a great question. It's a question for us to consider well. Uh, no matter where you are in this journey of following Christ, you've, maybe you've been around this thing for so long you don't remember why you started believing. You don't remember why you started coming to church. This is what you always did. Maybe that's you. Maybe you, this is still brand new to you. Maybe you're still looking and, and you're, you're asking questions and you're wondering and you're curious and you've got lots of questions and you've got lots of doubts. This is the fundamental question. We all need to ask ourselves this question. Who do I actually think Jesus is? What do I actually think about Jesus? No, 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 not, not what do my friends think. That's a good conversation. Not what do my parents think. It's, again, it's worth having the conversation. It's not what does Facebook think. Not, what does, not even what, what does the pastor think. What do I think? What do I actually think about Jesus? Jesus wants to know. What do you think? What do you believe? Well, look how Peter responds. Peter replied, You are the Messiah. Now, up to this point in Mark's Gospel, and this is there are 16 chapters in Mark's Gospel, this is chapter 8. This is the first half. The first half of this of this book, of this gospel, this biography of Jesus, there have been there has been one pressing question. And the question is: who is this Jesus? 
Who is Jesus of Nazareth? And people have, have had all kinds of different answers all the way through these first eight chapters. Uh, they've called him a teacher. They've called him a rabbi. They've called him a prophet. They've called him a, a prophet that's come back from the dead. They've got all these different theories about who Jesus is. But up until this moment in Mark 8, verse 29, no one has said this word, Messiah. Messiah. This is huge. This word Messiah means anointed one. The Messiah for these Jewish men, these disciples, and for the Jewish people who are listening to Jesus, who are around in this moment, they had been promised a Messiah, an anointed one, for generations. They have been waiting for literally centuries for the promised one, the anointed one to come. The Messiah has been this huge, great hope that they have held out. This is huge news that Peter is identifying Jesus as the Messiah. Let's go on, verse 31. So Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. I, 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 lo I love that line there in, in verse 32. He spoke plainly about this. Jesus is beginning to explain to his disciples what his messianic journey is going to be like. Okay, you've got it figured out. I'm the Messiah. Here's what that means. Here's what that looks like. He's saying to them, let me tell you what this is going to be about. And Jesus tells them that him being the Messiah, him being the anointed one, the promised one, him being the Messiah means that he is going to suffer, that he's going to be rejected by the religious authorities, that he is going to die and he throws in again that three days later he's going to rise from the dead he's going to be raised from the dead i love how mark says he spoke plainly about this he wanted to be sure they got it he didn't want there to be any surprises he wanted them to be sure that they knew what they have signed up for but they've got some questions and they're they're, they're not on the same page as jesus verse 32 peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Jesus is saying, you don't understand. And as he begins to explain it, I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to have to die. As he begins to explain what's going to go on, now we have the biggest questioning Jesus moment of all the moments from Peter. Peter is taking his own teacher to task here. This is, this is right, after, right after Peter has confessed Jesus to be the Messiah. This is not a good look for Peter. This is not Peter's best moment. But here's where this kind of hits you and me today and kind of where I want us to, to, to go in our conversation today. Is it possible? Is it possible to be right about who Jesus is and wrong about what we think Jesus should do? Is, is it possible to profess faith in Jesus but still try to force Jesus to fit into our preconceived notions and ideas and opinions? Or maybe I can say it more bluntly like this. Is it possible to be a follower of Jesus and still be deeply offended by the cross? You see, here's how I would sum up Peter's questioning Jesus moment here in Mark 8. 
I think the question is, how could Jesus' crucifixion be a part of God's plan? How in the world is this supposed to be what God wants? Why does Peter question Jesus this way? Well, let's do a little background. Peter and these other disciples, they have grown up in a culture, in a society where the Messiah was talked about. The Messiah has been promised for generations, for centuries. The Messiah was promised through the prophets from the Old Testament. The, the Messiah would have been referenced every time these, these young men would have gone to synagogue and they would have heard the, the rabbis teaching in the synagogue as boys and as young men, they would have heard about the Messiah in that moment. This Messiah who would have been held out as a hope for every family at every Passover celebration that they ever would have celebrated once a year for their entire lives, they would have celebrated and held out this hope for the Messiah. And when they talked about the Messiah in all these places, in the synagogue, in the scriptures, at Passover, when they talked about the Messiah, the Messiah was always, always, always a winner. He was never a loser. The Messiah was supposed to be a victor victorious and then not somebody who would ever experience defeat the messiah is supposed to be a conqueror a warrior not one who experiences any sort of death the messiah was going to be a military figure who would come in and kick out the romans who were occupying israel at that moment they were in charge of the nation of israel in this moment the Messiah was supposed to do all these great things out of strength and dominance and power and might. So in Peter's mind, what Jesus just described, rejected, death, what Jesus just described would make Jesus a false Messiah. So Peter figures Jesus needs some help. Which is why Peter thinks he is doing Jesus a favor when he takes him aside to rebuke him. I imagine the conversation like this. Hey, Jesus, <clears throat> listen, man, we, we need to talk about what you just said because I got some problems with that. That's just not going to, that's not, I'm not, and I'm, not, I'm not the only one, Jesus. I don't know if you saw Bartholomew's face. Man, he's freaking out over there when you said that. That's just not the plan at all. But here's the deal. I know you think you've got a plan, Jesus. I know you think you've got a listen, listen, Jesus, it's a bad plan. We got to burn this plan down. We got to start over because that's a bad plan. That's not going to get done. Right now, there's only 13 of us that know the plan, Jesus. So let's just scrap it, rip it up, throw it in the trash can. We're going to start over with a new plan because if we let them kill you, you will never be the Messiah. You will never be the anointed one. You will never be the promised one. You will never be the deliverer. You will never be the savior if we let them kill you. And that really was the issue. How could a Messiah, anointed by God, also die? It makes no sense in their, in their mind. It may not make much sense in ours in 2022 either. You see, for Peter and for the rest of the disciples, as you read through the rest of the Gospel of Mark, as you read through the other biographies of Jesus, all the different times and all the different places when the death of Jesus is brought up, the disciples get squeamish. They don't like to talk about it. They're, they're offended by it. It bothers them because the Messiah was supposed to be the winner. And death seems like a loser. They're bothered by it. 
I think rightfully so. Because they have seen, even in their lifetimes, they have seen a, a long line of would-be messiahs who have risen up and they've tried to bring an insurrection against the Roman regime. And they've tried to, to set their own people free and kick the Romans out. And they've all, every single one of them, ended up dead. They all ended up being killed by the Romans, which meant they were no longer would-be messiahs. They were false messiahs. They weren't the ones. And so that's where Peter's coming from in this moment. For Peter, death cannot be a part of the answer. I mean, especially not death on a cross. Who in the world would come up with this? I think the answer is no one, at least no one from an earthly perspective would come up with this game plan. There's a brilliant <clears throat> author and preacher. Her name is Fleming Rutledge. She's written this pretty incredible work. It's about that thick. It's kind of a scholarly theological work called The Crucifixion. It's a, it's a great, great book. But one of the things she says in this book is, is this. She goes, <clears throat> The paradox of the Christian religion is that at the center of the Christian faith is an irreligious event. She's referring to the crucifixion. What does she mean by that? Well, in the book, she defines religion as a set of beliefs projected out of humanity's needs, wishes, longings, and fears. I think that's a pretty good definition. The idea that religion is something that people believe out of their own needs, their own wishes, their own longings, and their own fears. And so human projections create a religion. And so when you look at all the religions all around the world for all time, there is at least one thing that we all have in common. We can all agree that the world is pretty messed up. Every religion believes this, that the world is pretty messed up. It doesn't matter which religion you ascribe to. It doesn't matter what you believe. We would all agree the world's pretty messed up. <clears throat> matter of fact, it's not even just religion. Every single philosophical movement in history, regardless of whether there's a deity at the center of it or not, every single philosophical movement would all agree there's something wrong with the world. Something is wrong with humankind. So everybody works on their answers to what could be done about it. Because in this world, we see so much brokenness and so much wickedness and so much violence and so much pain and so much death. The Christian word for this, the word we use in the Christian religion, is sin. Whatever you want to call it, all of us can agree something is deeply wrong. But if it was people who would then take all of their fears and all of their wishes and all of their dreams and all of their longings and try to dream up, well, what's the solution to this problem? Nobody came up with Jesus on a cross. Nobody's going to come up with that. No human is going to project all of their hopes and all of their fears and all of their dreams onto a crucified, tried criminal. It doesn't make any sense, and, and that's Fleming Rutledge's point. We would never do that. Peter and the disciples here in Mark 8, they would never do that. We don't do that to our heroes. We don't do that to the people who would rescue us, who would save us, who would be our champions, and yet that is exactly what God does. That's what God did. And God went to the cross in flesh 
as Jesus. Our challenges, like, we're, we're like Peter. We may not say it out loud like Peter did. We want a Savior, but not a suffering Savior. We want a Redeemer, but, but not a rejected Redeemer. We want a King, but not a crucified. Because the cross is just too offensive. I don't know if you saw this story just, just not pretty recently. Over in Steubenville, Ohio. Some of you know where that is. There's a university there called the Franciscan University. You may have heard of them. The Franciscan University, of, of, of some, some months ago, they posted some ads on Facebook um, advertising some of their theology courses at the Franciscan University of Steubenville. And the Facebook monitors, the censors or whatever on Facebook, took down one of their ads. The ad in question had a visual representation of crucifixion. A picture of crucifixion. And Facebook said that the reason that they rejected the ad was they found the depiction of the cross, here's the quote, shocking, sensational, and excessively violent. Well, duh. And so the university responded to Facebook with a blog post that kind of went viral in which they agreed with Facebook. And they wrote this. Indeed, the crucifixion of Christ was all of those things. It was the most sensational action in history. Man executed God. It was shocking, yes. God deigned to take on flesh and was obedient to death, even death on a cross. And it was certainly excessively violent. A man scourged to within an inch of his life, nailed naked to a cross and left to die. All the hate of all the sin in the world poured out its wrath upon his humanity. The university went on to say, <clears throat> it was love. It was love that kept Jesus on the cross, love for you and for me, that we might not be eternally condemned for our sins, but might have life eternally with him and his Father in heaven. It really was out of love and compassion that Jesus both foretold and then was willing to face and to head towards his cross. Because Jesus knew that something would be accomplished on the cross that could not be accomplished any other way. To us, even on this side of the cross, 2,000 some years later, it is at once a mystery, and, it want, and yet as Christians, it's also the message that we proclaim that on the cross Jesus the sinless one took on himself the sins of the world that on the cross Jesus the victor suffered the abuse of every victim that Jesus the innocent faced the punishment of us the guilty that Jesus the powerful embraced weakness itself 
Jesus, the life giver, succumbed to death so that through his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus, the righteous, now offers us his righteousness. Jesus, the beloved son, becomes our brother in God's family. Jesus, the resurrected one, now offers us hope beyond the grave. Jesus, the king, now welcomes us as citizens of his kingdom. Jesus, the bridegroom, prepares his bride, his church, for an eternal wedding banquet. Jesus knew and Jesus believed that he would accomplish something on the cross through his death, his burial, his resurrection, that God was working to bring redemption and hope and that it could not come any other way. Look what happens next, verse 33. Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples, then reprimanded Peter. Remember, Peter's just rebuked Jesus. Reprimanded Peter. Get away from me, Satan. Ouch, that's got to hurt, right? You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Maybe no more harsh words were ever spoken by Jesus to anyone. But Jesus hears in Peter's words a temptation. It was a similar temptation to what Jesus faced on the, at the very beginning of his ministry when he was in the desert for 40 days. A temptation to leverage his own power for his own good. His own comfort for his own glory. A temptation to avoid discomfort. A, a temptation to, to do it his way. And Jesus calls it out for what it is. But I think in doing so, Jesus also diagnoses the root of every sin that you and I still struggle with. Human concerns, vetoing godly concerns. My priorities over Christ's priorities. My instincts over the Holy Spirit's leading. Verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple, must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. You see, Jesus wasn't going to allow Peter to talk him out of becoming the crucified Messiah. But now Jesus is starting to talk about what it means to be a cross-shaped disciple. I heard one preacher say it like this. If the Messiah is called to the cross, no disciple will be called to the couch. Jesus says the the way, the, the, the path that I am taking is if, if you follow me, you are also on the path to the cross. You are also on the path of self-denial. You are also on the path of choosing God's concerns over human concerns. And I think that's the invitation for each one of us today. Jesus goes on to say that when you pursue this, if, if you'll do this, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. That's the promise. So just as a little bit of an epilogue to this entire Questioning Jesus series, I started thinking about this this week and realizing that for a lot of us, there is an unspoken but lived out question of Jesus. And I think it ties right into Peter's question. I think the question is this. Can I benefit from Jesus' cross, from the the cross of Calvary, from Christ's cross? Can I benefit from Christ's cross without having to bear my own cross? There's a pastor and author by the name of Brian Loritz. 
um, early in Brian's career, he was preaching at a church that was a, they were, they were using a rented facility. They didn't have their own building like we do. So they had this rented facility and they'd go in every week and they'd pay the money and, they, and it was great. But uh, as the church grew, they had to move to a bigger space. So they found a bigger space to rent. But the problem was this new space, um, or in the old space, they were able to like leave all their equipment and stuff set up all the time. It's just kind of their building. They rented it. But the new space they were was only available to them on Sunday mornings. And so every Sunday morning, they had to load in all of their equipment, their chairs, their, their sound equipment, their drum sets, their projectors, their sound sets, all, all the stuff. They had to load it all in, they'd have their services, and then on Sunday afternoon, they'd load it all back out in a trailer and have to go. That's a lot of work. There's a lot of churches that do that every Sunday. It was a whole lot of work, just a, just a, just a, a real burden to have to do with it. And so uh, Lawrence, uh, uh, Lawrence, Brian Lawrence, and a, a couple of weeks into uh, this new paradigm, this, this new kind of plan for their church, um, they're in a staff meeting, and he, they're talking about this new arrangement, and they're trying to figure out what can we do to make this process easier, because it was a lot of work, a lot of work on the staff, a lot of work on their volunteer team. What can we do to make this easier? And they're trying to figure out, they're debating, what can they change, what can they do differently to kind of lighten the load, to make the, to make the process easier on the volunteers? Well, one of the items that they started talking about as they were having this conversation was this big, huge cross that they used up on their platform every week. And this particular cross that they had was made out of wood, and it was huge, and it was bulky, and it was extraordinarily heavy. The staff said, it's really hard for the volunteers to move this cross in and out every week. So they came up with a plan. They were going to rebuild the cross, and they were going to use lighter materials to rebuild the cross so that it would lessen the load on the volunteer crew. Everybody in the room agreed and on then they moved on. Later in the day, Pastor Brian was reflecting on the decision they'd made about the cross, and he wrote this. <clears throat> it dawned on me the irony of our conversation. For we wanted to construct a cross that would not burden or cause us the slightest discomfort. And he asked, could this be a fitting parable for so many of us Christians, especially in America? You see, the cross is not an elective. It is a core piece of the curriculum of the Messiah. The cross is, is not a side dish. It is the entree. It is not a lead up to the good news, but it is central to the gospel of God's love and grace. Let me summarize it like this. We are forever changed by the cross of Christ. And we are formed daily by the cross that we carry. Let me pray for you. So I'm praying those of you who serve and go ahead and get ready to, to serve our communion. God, we thank you for the cross. Even though it is offensive, even though sometimes it gets in the way, we thank you for the cross and for the redeeming work of Jesus. The redeeming work of your love and grace demonstrated for us on the cross. So Father, teach us to take up our own cross to follow you in the way of self-denial, to follow you in putting your concerns ahead of our own concerns every time. We pray this 
in the name of the one who conquered death by going to a cross and then three days later rising from the dead. In the name of Jesus, the Messiah. Amen. I'm going to invite you to join me in a time of communion. The servers are coming around to pass those trays around. As those trays come by, take one of those stacks of cups. You know, every week we do this as, as uh, we take time to do what Jesus asked us to do. The night before he was going to die, he sat down with his disciples. He talked to them about his body broken, about his blood poured out. And as we're getting ready to participate today in the body and the blood of Christ, I was reminded this week, studying for this, I was reminded this week that, that in the Roman society, again, that's where Israel was. They were part of Roman society in the time of Jesus. In Roman society, during the age of crucifixion, that was this, the, the, the topic of crucifixion was never brought up in polite company. It was taboo. You didn't talk about, oh, do you see who got crucified this week? You never talked about it. It was, it was shameful. Nobody talked about it, especially among the upper crust of the Roman elite, or Roman society, because it was too horrible to mention. <clears throat> and yet God took that and turned it into a topic that today we preach about, we, we sing songs about, we read verses about it, we proclaim it, and we cherish it. So let's cherish together these emblems of the cross today. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, broke it, passed it to his disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body broken for you. Then Jesus took a cup. He prayed a prayer of thanksgiving, passed it to them and said, take and drink. For this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. body and the blood of Christ for the people 